following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. You know, as I was studying this week... My thoughts were drawn to a familiar event in Jesus's life. It was happened on an occasion, a day that was a very long day for him. He had been preaching and teaching, was very tired, a lot of conflict with the Pharisees. And perhaps to get away from the crowds and get some rest, Jesus had instructed his disciples to acquire a boat and to get in it so that they could cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You probably remember what happened next, right? Nice, even, smooth voyage, wasn't it? No, it turns out there was a fierce storm, right? The boat was being pummeled by waves. In fact, the boat was filling up with water. You remember what Jesus was doing in the midst of this? Yeah, he was so dead tired, he's asleep in the back. Remember what the disciples were doing during this time? These are seasoned fishermen, right? They've been on the sea all the time. They were just kicking back. Eh, it's just a few drops getting in the boat, right? Is that what they were doing? Oh, these guys were freaking out. We're, we're going to die. And they run over or walk over. I guess it's a small boat. But they get over to Jesus, shake him. Jesus, don't you care? We're going to die. We're going to die. Right? Jesus like, what? huh? And he gets up. What does he do? It's amazing, right? Gets up, says to the storm, Be quiet. And then instantly, right? Perfectly calm. Not even a slight breeze. Not even a sound. It was an amazing display of God's power over his creation. And then do you remember what Jesus did next? Did he turn to the disciples and say, Hey, is everybody okay? Did we lose anybody? Anybody overboard? Do we still have our supplies? Is that what he did? Remember, he said basically one thing, and from the scriptures, only one thing. He directed it to his disciples, and he said, Why are you afraid? Where is your faith? And he showed us in that moment God's chief concern, especially in the midst of trials. Do you have faith? Where is your faith? Do you trust him? Do you give greater attention to the circumstances you face or to the one who is sovereign over those circumstances? Is your focus on the problem or on the problem solver? You see, God cares most not about getting us out of our trials, but about us trusting him in the midst of those trials, right? You know, you often hear people talk about you know, when a person has an issue with their health or, or something like that, whether they have enough faith to be healed. You know, I think a more important question that we need to ask is, do you have enough faith to be sick? Do you trust God enough to face whatever situation he brings into your life or into the life of those you care about? That is really the real question. Do you have enough faith in God to be sick? That's the question that faced Habakkuk as we come to the last chapter of his book. For as we've seen so far in Habakkuk, he's been wrestling with a very difficult situation in his own life. The 
the existence of all the evil that was going on around him and God seeming to be doing nothing about it. He began his book with the question in Habakkuk 1-2, How long, O Lord, will I, will I call out to you for help and you don't answer? I cry out violence and you don't hear. Why do you make me see all of this iniquity around me? And you're not doing anything about it. And when God answers that lament, he says, well, I am doing something about it. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. They're going to be here soon and they will judge Judah for her sin. That only made Habakkuk more confused and perplexed. What do you mean, Lord? You're going to bring them, a people more wicked than we are, to judge us? That bothered him. He said, I don't get it, God. I know you're sovereign. I know you're holy. I know you're just. But this makes no sense. First, you seem to tolerate evil but the actions going on around me and nothing seems to be happening. And then you seem to be endorsing evil by prospering another more wicked nation and allowing them to be blessed and to gain territory and to exercise their wickedness among the nations. And it is then in chapter 2 that, that God assures Habakkuk that he will indeed judge the Chaldeans as they have treated others so they would be treated. And in this context of judgment in chapter 2, God gives Habakkuk an even more important message. It's one that we focused on last time we were in this book. One that spans beyond the time of Habakkuk or even beyond the empire of Babylon. We see it in Habakkuk 2, 13 and 14, where God declares that he is moving history to one end, to one goal. Yes, the nations, they are scurrying about, they are building their kingdoms, they're establishing their dynasties, they're, they're trying to make their mark on history. But God says there in the middle of chapter 2, that is all futile. For he says in 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. There is the purpose of history. Right there, God says, this is my plan with my creation, that it is my glory that will fill the earth completely. And I'm moving all things toward that end. I will be exalted. I will be glorified. That is what God is doing in this world. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ is going to make that happen, right? We talked about that this morning. I was just as I was singing these songs, noticing almost every one of them had some aspect or comment or reference to his return, didn't they? He's coming. He's the king who will bring humanity, all of humanity, under submission to God, either by forgiveness or by judgment. Forgiveness for any who would look upon the cross, confess their sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, their need for forgiveness, put their faith in him, commit to follow him the rest of their days. They will be forgiven. But judgment for any who refuse. You know John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God abides on him. And God raised Christ from the dead in order to show that His sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. That God accepted that. He raised Him from the dead in order to show Jesus is the one who's going to bring about that kingdom, who's going to bring about God's glory that will fill the earth, that will cover it. Like the waters of the sea. Well, God ends his response to Habakkuk in chapter 2. That last verse is very important. It's God's final statement in response to Habakkuk's questions. For there he says in 2.20, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. 
And it reminds you of what Jesus said to the waves. In fact, basically, he said the same thing. Hush, be silent. Everyone stand in awe. But God, what about this evil that's going on around me? Shh. But God, what about all these wicked governments and rulers who are... Shh. But God, what about the persecution? What about... I've given my answer, Habakkuk. I am sovereign. I am just. I am good. I am powerful. And I will establish my kingdom the best way I see fit. I will deal with anyone who rebels against me, Habakkuk. Be assured of that. But in the meantime, you need to trust me. It's exactly what God said earlier, in a sense, in Habakkuk 2.4, when really the key verse to the whole book, where he says there, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And though God doesn't phrase it in exactly the, the same way as Jesus did on that boat after the sea was calm, but essentially he's saying the same thing that Jesus said, Habakkuk, where's your faith? So here Habakkuk has been heard from God. He's been given a definitive response. How will Habakkuk respond? Will he live by faith? Will he trust God enough regardless of what he sees, regardless of what he experiences, regardless of what is bothering him? What would he do about all this? Well, we see his response in Habakkuk chapter 3. And if uh, in our new Calvary exercise program, if you would please stand one more time. As we read this chapter together. And I want you to know and pay attention to and look for the format in which Habakkuk delivers his response. He says, beginning in verse 1, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered and the ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kashan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. 
Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, but as for me, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and He has made my feet like hinds feet. It makes me walk on high places for the choir director on my stringed instruments. Here in Habakkuk's response, we see an example of ultimate faith. Let's pray for insight into his word. Father, I do ask now that you would open up understanding in our hearts and our minds to know what you are saying here through your servant Habakkuk. And that, God, we would be those great faith in you, a faith, Lord, that we know we cannot conjure up on our own, but that you need to give us. And we ask for that faith in the name of our Savior. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, as we look at Habakkuk's response, it comes in a familiar form, doesn't it? Do you notice the title at the beginning? The reference to the choir director at the end. And the use of the Hebrew word salah three different times in this poem. So what do these things remind you of? What kind of writing is this? Where, where would it more naturally seem to be located in the Bible, right? In the Psalms, right? This is a psalm. This is a, a, a song that he has written. And interestingly enough, the, that word salah, which uh, probably has the idea of a, a pause, a musical interlude, there, uh, it's just a time of reflection throughout the psalm. That word salah is only found in the psalms. And in this chapter, Habakkuk begins this psalm by titling it as the prayer of Habakkuk. That's a title that is found in several psalms. One example is Psalm 90, where it's titled as a prayer of Moses, or Psalm 86, a prayer of David. And as in the case of Habakkuk, the psalm titles often contain information either about the author, about his circumstances. We read in Psalm 63 this morning, it said that David was in the wilderness, right? And here... In this psalm, we're also given a form of instruction, as is the case in many psalms. Here he, Habakkuk says, according to Shigenoth. Well, what is that? It's not a normal word we use in English. When's the last time somebody used that word, by the way, in your conversation? If you did, you're a weirdo, right? That's, a, that's an odd word. Well, the reason it's odd is because it's not an English word. It's actually a Hebrew word that the meaning is not completely certain. And so they just leave it. They transliterate it, how it would be pronounced in English. And then they'll usually put a footnote within the margin or something like that to give, uh, indicate what the likely meaning is. Some Bible translations, when they look at these titles, they look at them and they have even left them out. Some believe that these psalm titles were added later, that they were not part of the original uh, a psalm, the original poem. But I think Habakkuk here shows us very clearly that they are. And you know what? I have my notes out of order, so you got a little preview of what's coming. <laughs> We're going to talk about psalm titles. I wondered about that because I'm thinking, didn't I write down uh, what Shigian Oath meant? I'm like, well, I guess not. We're going to just keep going. <laughs> 
You know, that's my greatest fear when I sort these things, that they're going to be out of order. And so anyway, I digress. We're actually going to digress in a minute and talk about psalm titles. If you're wondering, well, what does Shigenoth mean, Tim? Well, let me tell you. The New American Standard, if you notice in your footnote, it indicates that that word, um, uh, it comes actually from the root word to err, and probably has the idea of, of to something that is greatly emotional, a highly emotional poetic form, a poem, excuse me, highly emotional poetic form is what New American Standard has. The NIV footnotes it as it's probably a lyr- literary or musical term. In fact, in Psalm 7, verse 1, David uses the same word in the singular form when he says that his psalm is a shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord. And so that indicates there's this idea of singing related to that word. It's some instruction probably to, to sing with great passion, with great emotion, with great excitement. And I want to take a minute and talk about these psalm titles. We're gonna, I'm going to intentionally go on a rabbit trail here just for a moment. Because I think the psalm titles are misunderstood often. As I mentioned earlier, the psalm titles uh, are are by many thought to just be add-ons. They came later. They're not inspired. Somebody put them in when they compiled the Psalter. And some Bible translations, they don't even include the titles within the translation. Well, what should we think about that? Because if you survey the psalms, you'll find that 116 of the psalms in the Psalter have titles. And in fact, we see a title here from Habakkuk. And these titles, they are found in the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Hebrew Bible, indicating that those who took very great care in copying the Hebrew Scriptures, they believed that those titles were part of the text. And here we see in Habakkuk, I think definitively shows that these psalm titles are part of the inspired text that the original author wrote when he wrote out the poem. Habakkuk did here. If you go over to Isaiah 38, there's a a psalm there that Hezekiah had written in response to uh, God giving him extra life those 15 years. And then he he wrote out a psalm. And in that, there's a title to his psalm, Isaiah 38. In fact, he says it's a writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. And so along with Isaiah 38, along with Habakkuk chapter 3, I think we see that The title is part of what the author wanted to be in his psalm. That it is inspired. That it should be there. That the original author did write it. What's the big deal? It's just a title, Tim. Why are you making a statement about that? Well, if it's inspired, what does that mean? Who who originated it? God said it, right? And if he said it, there's probably some importance and significance to it, right? In fact, what does it say in 2 Timothy? All Scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable for us, right? So that means even these psalm titles that the Holy Spirit carried the authors and moved them to write, they are part of the Scriptures and they are important for our sanctification somehow, some way. These titles often give some context to the psalm. They tell us about the author or circumstances. As I mentioned in Psalm 63, knowing that David was in the wilderness running for his life is a very important aspect to understanding the depth of that psalm, that David's crying out for God to, that he's his thirst, that he thirsts for him. And knowing that he's in the desert, knowing that he's in a hot place where he's probably physically thirsty, he's tired, he's on the run, That adds some power to his words, doesn't it? 
The title really helps develop and enrich what he has to say. Titles often give the theme of a psalm, or they often, like in the case of Habakkuk 3, give us instruction about the psalm's tone, how we should take it. If it's a song, or it's an instruction, or it's intended to give wisdom, or it's intended to be sung. These titles can help provide a better understanding of what God is saying through the human author. And that's what we want, isn't it? To know God's word. We're getting back to Habakkuk 3. I just want to encourage you, as you read the Psalms, read the whole Psalm. As you study the Psalm, study the whole Psalm, including the title. Study all that God has written. Amen? And looking at Habakkuk, we see that he has given inscriptions both at the beginning of his psalm and at the end of the psalm. We see there for the choir director at the end. And, and these tell us that this was a psalm that Habakkuk intended to be sung. And he intended it to be sung as part of Israel's worship. That's why he gives instructions for the choir director at the end to sing, have this song sung. And it is to be sung, as we found out in the early title, the first title, that it is to be sung with emotion, with excitement, with passion. That tells us a lot about the state of Habakkuk's heart at this point, doesn't it? And I don't know about you, but I, I find it very instructive that after all that we have seen from Habakkuk, his concerns, the questions that he had of God, what God said, that in Habakkuk's response, he has this response of worship. As he's wrestling with the problem of God allowing evil in his world. And he shows us the issue isn't something we should be ashamed of. It isn't something that we should criticize or be resigned about. Rather, it is something that we should worship God for. And so here we, we see Habakkuk. He's, he's gone through an entire shift in his perspective, hasn't he? I mean, think about how did he begin his book Lord, where are you? What are you doing? How long do I have to cry out to you? But you're not saying or doing anything. Where are you? He's gone from that to, Lord, I revere you. Preserve, revive your work among us. See the difference here? Right? He's, he's gone from, from attacking God's local and global policies to now asking him to preserve them, to continue them, to revive them. He's gone from accusing God of wrongdoing to revering God for what he's done. Indeed, something has changed in Habakkuk. How could he go from lament and complaint to worship? How, how could he go from accusation to reverence, from discouragement to hope? Habakkuk's circumstances haven't changed, have they? God didn't take care of all the evil that moment, did he? No, it was still going on. In fact... Habakkuk found out your circumstances are going to get worse, buddy, because the Chaldeans are coming through. So Habakkuk had every reason to be even more concerned and lament, but he doesn't. He has an attitude here of worship. What's changed? What's happened? Well, in God's response in chapter 2, Habakkuk was shown the big picture. That God's sovereign reign, it was coming. It was coming across the entire earth. And that a perfectly just and holy God would deal with anybody who opposed that reign. And as, as Habakkuk, as he grasped the reality of all that was happening, that, that, that God will use everything to achieve that end, all that Habakkuk could do was, was stand there in awe. All he could do was say, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
For you see, Habakkuk, he learned a critical lesson here. One that we all need to remember when we come to those times of a, a crisis of faith in our own lives. When we come to those times of a trial or hardship. When, when what God is doing just doesn't make any sense. For you see, when Habakkuk had his eyes on himself or his circumstances or his nation or the Babylonians, when his attention was, was fixed on his life and his plans and his future and his people, nothing he saw around him made any sense, right? All was dire and hopeless. God seemed absent. There was no big picture. There was no grand plan. There was no purpose to it all. That's exactly where Job was at. And that is often where we are at. See, Habakkuk had these spiritual blinders on. You know, racehorses, they have these blinders on to keep them from looking to the side. There are a lot of times in life we end up with these horizontal blinders that keep us from looking where we need to be looking in the midst of those trials. Because imagine a racehorse, if he's able to look around and get distracted, what's going to happen? In the same way, when we are kept from looking where we need to look, what's going to happen? In chapter 2, God takes Habakkuk's blinders off so he could look up and see the big picture and see what God is doing. Habakkuk was given one long look at God and his kingdom and his plan, and that is what shifted his passion from his own glory to God's glory. That's the key, beloved. In the midst of a life that doesn't make sense, in the midst of trials, in the midst of hardship, difficulty, struggles, in the midst of Ferguson or ISIS, or Ebola, in the midst of human trafficking, betrayal, house foreclosures, in the midst of these things, we must make sure our vertical blinders are not on, but off. We can forget at times there is an all-powerful, just, holy, and loving God who is in control, one who knows the end from the beginning. He understands what is happening. He has a purpose in it all. And that purpose is to achieve the one end that his glory would cover the earth. That's where it's going. And it's so important to ask yourself, but particularly in those times of struggle, what is your greatest concern in life? What really is it? Your plans or God's? What's most critical to you? Peace among men or peace with God? What do you fear more, that your name is slandered or that Christ is slandered? What's your chief worry, your finances or the holiness of Jesus' bride? Is advancing God's gospel more important to you than your personal comfort? Beloved, when your prayer becomes like Habakkuk's, when your prayer is, O Lord, revive your work in this land. Oh, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Jesus, be glorified in this world through me. When that is your prayer, that's how to live by faith, no matter what happens. Again, it comes down to whether your focus is horizontal or vertical. And what turned it around for Habakkuk was when his eyes were lifted up. And his focus was changed. And indeed, that is where he draws our focus in the next part of this psalm. Verses 1 and 2, he pins a reverent response. And in verses 3 to 15, he now paints a powerful picture. Picture of God. In fact, in these verses, verses 3 to 15, Habakkuk relays to us a vision that he saw. A theophany, a manifestation of God that he was given. Notice in verse 7, he says, I saw 
In verse 16, he says, I heard and at the sound. He describes here a vision that he was given by God, a theophany, if you will. And he describes that in two distinct poems, one poem in verses three to seven and the the other poem in verses eight to 15. And woven within this vision in these verses appears to be several historical events related to Mount Sinai, related to the Exodus and related to uh, them coming to the promised land, God bringing them there. It's difficult to be definitive in, in every verse as to which particular past event he may be alluding to, or in some cases he's not alluding to a specific or, uh, historical event, but he's actually just presenting a symbol to communicate a, a point, an image. So verses 3 to 15, they, they come across more as you read through them, kind of like this montage, this picture after picture after picture of God and who he is and what he's done. Some of these scenes that he gives, they are rooted in history. Others are simply poetic descriptions of a particular attribute that he is emphasizing here about God and perhaps not a specific event. And so one Old Testament scholar recommended in in looking at these verses not to get lost too far in the details and trying to analyze each and every line of this vision and identify, okay, what historical event does this refer to? But instead he encourages us to to look at the collective picture, the, the picture as a whole that these verses present about God and what he's done and what he will do. As I mentioned, the, this theophany is broken into two poems. The first is in verses 3 to 7, and it's framed by four geographical locations. Two at the beginning of this poem, verse 3, and two at the end, in verse 7. In verse 3, he mentions Taman. That's not a city we normally memorize in school. That's a location in Edom, which is just south of Judah. And then he mentions after that Mount Paran. That refers to the region of Mount Sinai. It's located even further to the south. So you have Judah, you have Edom below. There's the the Dead Sea, Edom's below that. And then below that is the Sinai Peninsula. Now Sinai should ring a bell, right? That is where God brought them right after coming out of Egypt, right? The Ten Commandments. And mentioning these locations, he also describes a picture of God, of His radiance, of His glory, of His brightness, his splendor, and these all would draw people's attentions. These locations and that description of God, they would draw the, the people's attention, Habakkuk's audience, to be thinking about the time of the Exodus, of Mount Sinai. In fact, we see a similar description given by Moses in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, where he says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir, which is another name for Edom. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and at his right hand there was flashing, lightning, It's a picture of God as he led his people out of Egypt, as he brought them to Mount Sinai. Remember, he led them with a bright cloud with the flame and pillar of fire. And then they saw his Shekinah glory as he brought them through the wilderness, right? That's what he's picturing here or describing in a general way. He protected them as well from from these enemies by pestilence and plague, right? Egypt learned that lesson, learned it the hard way. Verse 6 then pictures the Lord as this all-powerful bodyguard. As he leads his people, he's looking around for Israel's enemies. And his power is presented here poetically to say, not even the mountains, the the hills, they can't even stand before him. They shake in fear at God's power. That shaking even too would remind us of what, remember what was happening at Mount Sinai when God was there? Exodus 19, Exodus 20, it was shaking. What's that whole lot of shaking going on? That's exactly the picture in Exodus. 
Verse 7, Habakkuk mentions two more locations as he frames this first poem. The locations he mentions there are Kushan and Midian, both probably in reference to Midian. Again, we, if I remember our little map here, we have Judah, we have the Dead Sea, we have Edom, we have Mount Sinai and Sinai Peninsula. Between that was the region of Midian. It stretched from between those two and then down further east. I think he mentions them because the people of Israel passed through that region on their way from Egypt, through the Sinai Peninsula, up and through Edom to the Promised Land, right? They would pass through Midian. And so, again, here's a picture of the the, the Midianite tents were shaken in their boots because God was going before his people. Remember, there was great fear among the nations as they were moving through, right? That's, I think, just as a poetic way to express that. The second poem of Habakkuk's vision comes in verses 8 through 15, and it's, it's more distinct in its focus. For God here is pictured how? Talks about he has a chariot, his bow is at the ready, his arrows and his spear are glistening from reflecting the sun. They're out and ready. What's the picture of God being presented here? The warrior. As a warrior prepared for battle. It's not clear or it is clear from these images that that the warrior here, warrior God, has not come for peace but for war. Verse 8, notice that there's three synonyms given for wrath in the three questions posed of God. Questions that have to do with whether or not he was angry with the waters of the earth. And I think he's referring to there, and we get asked that question, because remember, what did the Red Sea look like when the people of Israel came upon it? And they were being chased by the chariots of Pharaoh. Remember, he split the waters, right? And then the chariots went through, and what happened to the waters? Kind of a violent activity, wouldn't you say? I mean, this was not a little pond or a lake. This was a massive body of water. So there was a lot of turbulence. Again, a whole lot of shaking going on. And so the psalmist asked in a poetic way, Were you mad at the water, God? Obviously, he wasn't, right? His rage, his wrath was directed towards God's enemies. It's all part of a poetic description here that he gives in verses 8 through 10 of a God at war and nature in upheaval at his presence. The power of God is vividly portrayed by God stirring up the great fixtures of nature as he marches to battle. As you look at those verses and he talks about the mountains quaking and the downpour of water swept by in verse 10, the deep uttered forth its voice. Verse 11, he describes the sun and the moon standing still. Again, perhaps a reference to The day the earth stood still, right? Joshua 10. But these are all presented here to give a picture. Verses 12 to 14 then says that the enemies of God, not nature, are the focus of his rage. And then in verse 15, he ends this second poem in the same way that he began it, by talking about God on his horses, his war horses upon the sea. I kind of sped through those. There's certainly a lot more we could talk about in these verses because I really just wanted you to get the the essence of what he was driving at here in these verses, in this theophany, in this vision that he was given. The essential thrust here is that that God is presented as this unstoppable, all-powerful, terrifying warrior, destroying his enemies and delivering his people. We have to ask ourselves, well, why, why did God give Habakkuk this vision? And now Habakkuk gives it to us. How does it relate to his message? Well, those of you who invest, you've probably seen almost on every, I think on every um, 
investment literature. Brad, correct me on this if I'm wrong. But basically it says past performance is no guarantee of future results, right? And indeed, that is true in the financial realm. We've been taught a lesson about that these last several years, right? But in God's case, that is not true. In God's case, past performance is a definite guarantee of future results. And that's what Habakkuk is being shown here. Look at what I have done in the past, Habakkuk. Look at who I am. Look at how I demonstrated my power. Nothing's changed about me. Past performance is a guarantee of future results. That's the message here. God has divinely intervened in the past. He has judged those in rebellion against him. He has delivered the faithful. He has kept his promises. And so this imagery of of God as this almighty warrior shaking the earth, shaking heaven, going on the warpath, it is to make this one point. God is God. And no one can stop him. Indeed, doesn't this imagery remind us of a particular event that is happening sometime in the future. We don't know exactly when. There'll be a warrior king riding on a white horse. And he will come and it will be a massacre. Right? King Jesus will not come as a a needy infant or an impoverished teacher or a wandering prophet or a victim of circumstance. Right? He's going to be coming on that white horse and he'll be slaying the nations with but a word. Delivering his people who've been oppressed. And it is that picture in Revelation that Jesus, that shows that Jesus is not simply a king. He's a warrior king. He's the king of kings. And if you like Habakkuk, if you find that your faith is in need of strengthening, if if you find that you need endurance in the midst of trials or encouragement to persevere, then you must see the same thing Habakkuk saw. You must see what what God has already done, what He promises to do, and what He will do when His Son returns. God's given it to us in writing. And the ink of that writing is the blood of His own Son. He is the guarantee that he will judge sin and he will save those who believe. And beloved, there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing on earth or in heaven that's going to stop him. Again, that's the picture here. You couldn't throw a mountain in front of him or a huge body of water or the sun or the moon. Nothing's going to stop God. In fact, they'll all shake and move out of the way. Beloved, this is the truth that will keep your vertical blinders off. This is the truth that will keep you from focusing only on the here and now. This is the truth that will keep you from worrying more about your present circumstances than about God's kingdom. Again, this powerful picture of our God, this picture will move you to trust Him no matter what. I mean, think about that. If you walk into a dark alley and you're afraid something may happen to you. And all of a sudden, this big, massive guy, Jeff Lambin, shows up next to you. Huge guy. You're like, cool. I can go down this alley now. Right, Jeff? You would watch my back, right? <laughs> right? It's that kind of thing. It's like, oh, God's here. And look at what he's done. He is powerful. Nothing can stop him. I can go forward now. 
He's got my back. Now, he may allow certain things as you go down that alley. But again, he's the one in control. He has the big picture in mind. He knows the beginning from the end. And he's carrying you through for your good and for his glory. He's got it all figured out. His glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And this picture that Habakkuk got of God, this understanding moved him to a righteous resolve. And that's what we see in the last four verses of his psalm. In these last words of Habakkuk's psalm, he reminds us, we still live in a fallen world. We live in a world of loss, a world of pain and suffering, a world that is ravaged by sin, one that is run by Satan, a world where things often don't make sense. And so what are we to do as we live in such a place, as we wait for our warrior king to return? How do we persevere? How do we endure? What do we do in the face of cancer, of betrayal, of death, of injustice, poverty, eviction, disability, abandonment, infidelity, cruelty? What do we do when experiencing these things? Well, our brother Habakkuk has shown us the answer. The last four verses of this poem that he's written. First notice in verse 16, right after the vision, notice the impact that it had on him. He was shaken to the core, physically and emotionally. And that's the same thing that happened to Isaiah. Remember when he saw a vision of the throne in Isaiah 6 and he, he said, I'm unworthy. Take me out now, Lord. Or John, when he saw a vision of Christ in Revelation, remember he fainted. Or Ezekiel, when he was given a vision, he saw God's glory, he fell on his face. Or Daniel, when he was given a vision of the future, he was sick, he couldn't eat for weeks. You see, when you get a glimpse of God, when he, when he peels back the veil of heaven, even, even ever so slightly, you will be affected. You will be shaken, you'll be filled with awe, just as Habakkuk was. And so again, we see here that it is an accurate picture of God that we need if we would see things rightly in His world. If we would look at the world through His eyes. If we would understand what reality truly is. If we would truly live by faith in Him. Because we often struggle to live by faith because we don't see God as He truly is. Many in our churches, many churches, they've, they've softened God around the edges. They made him a little more palatable, right? They've minimized his justice. They've, they've thrown to his side, to the side, or they've ignored his wrath. They've removed his warrior armor and they've replaced it with genie robes or a business suit or an entertainer's costume. No wonder our faith is so weak. No wonder that we struggle. What's our picture of God? What is your picture of God? Is it the same one we see here? Or has it been altered? One of the best things you can do to grow your faith in God. One of the best things you can do is to see him as he truly is. Spend time in Habakkuk 3. Many other places in scripture. Prayerfully read and study his word. Ask him to give you a greater glimpse. So I often pray is, Lord, may you show me yourself and give me a, a greater picture of who you are so that I would be in awe. So that my vertical blinders would be removed, especially when I'm going through difficulty. Beg God to help you see the glory of God in Christ. At this point, Habakkuk had received God's answer to his questions. God certainly would judge Judah. 
and then he would judge Babylon for their sin. And so Habakkuk says at the end of verse 16 that he will wait patiently for God's timing and bringing about that judgment. Notice he says there the end of verse 16. And now there's some question though, which judgment is he referring to? Is he referring to the judgment of Babylonians upon Judah or the judgment of God upon Babylon? New American Standard reads, I must wait patiently for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us, which seems to indicate that it's referring to the Babylonian invasion of Judah, that that is the thing that he's waiting for. But I think a better understanding of the Hebrew here is that Habakkuk is speaking of God's judgment upon Babylon, not Judah. In fact, most English translations see it that way. If you have an ESV, you'll notice it says, I wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. And that would make more sense too, right? Habakkuk wasn't looking forward to the time when Judah would be attacked, but he definitely would be in anticipation of when Babylon would be taken care of. It's that understanding that he speaks of here. And then in verse 17, Habakkuk anticipates what the effects of the Babylonian invasion will have upon Judah. He knows what's going to happen. When those ruthless Chaldeans come through, they're not going to be nice about it. They're going to ravage the land. They're going to take the livestock. They're going to use up all the fruit and the the fields, and then they're going to burn them. A scorched earth policy was a common practice in the ancient Near East. right? You didn't want your enemies to quickly rise up again. You wanted them to be utterly dependent on you. And so he mentions here six elements in verse 17, how they would be taken, the fig tree, the olive, the vine. And, and those six elements really represent the totality of the agriculture, the agrarian culture that, that Judah had. If all those things were removed, they were in big trouble. Not only would they not have things to eat, they wouldn't have the things in order to grow their economy. But notice here that Habakkuk, as he thinks about these things, the, the total potential total destruction of his land and how it would affect not only the nation, but also Habakkuk, right? Notice in verse 17 that he doesn't respond by lamenting. He doesn't complain about losing everything, does he? In fact, it's quite the opposite. He says, though, or, or even though, if the fig tree should not blossom, even there be no fruit on the vines, even though the yield of the olive should fail, even though the field should produce no food, even though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and even though there be no cattle in the stall. He's saying, even if I suffer the loss of everything, if it's a total loss, he says. And then comes those all-important words. Words that we receive from Micah. Words that we receive from David in Psalm 13, where he says in the beginning of verse 18, but as for me. Remember that? And I told you, you got to memorize those words. But as for me, he says, rather than grumble or lament or fret or give up, I will put my head in the sand and hope it blows by. What did he say? I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Those are highly emotionally charged words. Words expressing joy. And these aren't the ravings of some lunatic who's disconnected from the world or from reality. These aren't the words of some Pollyanna who's just denying things. Oh, you know, even if things get bad, I'm just going to I'm going to think happy thoughts and think positively and it'll be better. It's not what he says, is it? That's not Habakkuk. We've learned about Habakkuk. We know that he's not like that. We're keenly aware of the fact that 
He knew about the world around him. He knew about the problems of evil. And as we come to Habakkuk 3.17, Habakkuk's circumstances haven't changed. In fact, God told him they were going to get worse, as I mentioned earlier. But despite that, rather than complain, rather than despair, rather than be resigned to his fate, Habakkuk responds in worship. And he responds expressing joy in the Lord. And then this, beloved, we see a very important lesson that your faith cannot rest upon the false notion that, that God promises health, wealth, and happiness and comfort in this life. He makes no such guarantees, does he? In fact, it's often quite the opposite. But the kind of faith that can stare tragedy in the eye, the, the kind of faith that can suffer loss and still exult, still rejoice in God, the kind of faith that, that can experience hardship, And still worship Jesus? That faith is built upon treasuring Christ. That faith comes from knowing God is enough. That faith comes from a consuming love for Jesus. That kind of faith comes from a deep appreciation for what He's done for you. Notice He says there, the God of my salvation. That's ultimately all that really matters, right? It's just a few years here, folks. We don't live that long. Even if you make it to 100. Our dear sister Madeline Salibian is only a few weeks away from that. Even if you make it that far, it's really not that long. Do you believe in and worship God because of what He can do for you or because of who He is? Again, many have the faith to be healed, but how many have the faith to be sick? John Piper said, The losses of life are meant to wean us off the poisonous pleasures of the world and to lure us to Christ, our everlasting joy. And you know, as I speak of these words, I I tread carefully here because I've not experienced in my own life, I've experienced some trials, but I've not even come close to the hardship that so many others have faced. So many of you have faced Incredible difficulties. There's one person who's probably taught me more than anyone else what Hebrews 3.17 looks like. Trusting God even when her fig tree has no blossom, even when her vine has no fruit, even when there's no cattle in her stall. She was born without half of her spinal column. Her vertebrae from the middle of her back down are just, they're gone. Spinal cord is undeveloped. She suffers from significant physical deformity and paralysis. She can't stand up when we stand to sing. She can't run around and play with her friends. She has these ongoing deep wounds on her legs and feet because she can't feel when her legs are, when the skin's being ripped off of them as she crawls around. She has a lot of other physical Challenges that are of a more personal nature. Beyond all these things, she gets the stares, she gets the looks, she gets the rude questions. She experiences the discomfort of looking so very different when she moves into a room. But you know what? Despite all of that, despite all of that, she trusts in God. And I know these things. I know that 
every day she wakes up with a smile on her face. She doesn't complain about the daily challenges she faces, things we take for granted. You won't hear her grumble against God because of the broken and deformed body she's been given. And I know these things because I live with her. She's my own daughter. And I'm saying these things not to embarrass her. Sorry if I'm embarrassing you, Bree. Not for you to feel sorry for her. Not so that you would revere her. She is a sinner like you and me. She's dependent on God's grace and strength. But I say these things so that you would be encouraged. Because no matter what you face, no matter what you see in this world that doesn't make sense, no matter what you may be suffering, no matter what hardship you may face, you can rejoice in Christ. You can trust Him. You can exult in Him. And Bri, I want to thank you for showing me what that looks like. You didn't ask for this. You didn't deserve it. But you trust God anyway. And beloved, our focus this morning isn't on Bree. It's not even on Habakkuk. Our focus is on our wonderful, gracious God. And that is exactly where our brother Habakkuk ends his story. Verse 19, he says, The Lord God is my strength. Just like Paul said, right? I can go through anything because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if you're struggling to trust Christ, if you're struggling to trust God in the midst of what you're going through, go and tell Him about that. Ask for help from Him. He is your strength. Immerse yourself in His Word. He will make you like that sure-footed deer that Habakkuk describes, who's even while on a precarious cliff that has sure footing. He will make you that way. You will have sure footing in the precarious cliffs of life. He can be trusted, beloved. He can be trusted. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this incredible scene, this picture, these images, these reminders of you, who you are what you have done. Thank you for the comfort that you are a mighty warrior. That you will do what is right. That you will make your name known. That it is your glory and your kingdom that you will spread across the entire earth and that we need not fret or worry. But God, we know in the meantime, we may lose all of our crops. We may lose a loved one. We may suffer health issues and problems. We may go through terrible turmoil financially or in our family. We may be persecuted. We may lose everything. Give us the faith of Habakkuk that we could say, even though I've lost it all, I will rejoice in God, the God of my salvation, the one who I will be with for eternity. The one who is the only satisfaction in this life and in the life to come. Give us that kind of ultimate faith, God. Show us your glory. 
make that our passion. May Jesus Christ be honored through us. In his name we pray. Amen.